This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Hey, MoGab. Hey. You're back. You're better than ever. We had to skip last week because you were sick. I'm so sorry. I sounded really great. That would have been awesome (laughs) to record. But the good news is the people got a double dose of Anna. (laughs) And as one of her biggest biggest fans, fans. (laughs) I didn't didn't want to commit, but look, I think she's atrocious. But game respects game on Twitter. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm MoGap, (laughs) the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Have you watched Inventing Anna yet? I have not, because here is my list of things I need to work through. I know that you <laughs> love my TV agendas. Sure. I'm slowly enjoying Sweet Magnolia's season mm-hmm. two, because I mm-hmm. went through season one so fast, and I had to wait forever for season two, and I can't handle that. <laughs> then I'm moving on to Cheer season two. Oh, and yeah. I got to watch Cheer too. I am moving on to Inventing Anna, probably, because I can't <laughs> decide if I want to read the book first. I got the book for my birthday last year, the Anna Delvey book. Oh, I don't think I mean, it matters. I already know it's what not happens. Be, yeah. I know, but I was just I'm like, on I finished episode four and, and Rachel's only been in one scene, so hmm. yeah, I really am interested in it. Yes. Well, you should watch the show because Julie no. Gardner is ridiculous as Anatoly. She makes me love her. Like <gasps> has Anna Delvey tweeted about it? Let me go see. Yeah, she's back in prison. What? Yeah, she's back in jail. And she said, uh, even if I could watch it in here, like, why would I want to do that? Or <laughs> oh, stop it. Why is she back there? I don't okay, remember. Okay, but literally, she's so shysty. Her Twitter bio starts with reinventing it. Like, the only reason she was still in the country was, like, issues with her immigration status while they're, like, waiting to deport her, I think. Wait, she hasn't tweeted since March. What a disappointment. Oh, March. Because she's been in jail. <laughs> In March 2021, six weeks after her release, she was taken back into custody by ICE for overstaying her visa. <laughs> <laughs> Love to what, see an, it. what an Anna thing to do. Apparently, there's when is this dated? There's an Anna Delvey reality show in the works. That's amazing. 
Hey, we should talk about the Patreon. We should. And again, to all the people that have signed up, um, we, we couldn't love you more. Couldn't we love you couldn't. more. We now have six bonus episodes up there for anyone six? who would like to. Six. I know. Do you know what that means? That means our Patreon has been up for six months. Oh, my this goodness. Is sixth, that is kind of cool. Our sixth month of Patreoning. And that includes this month, February's episode on the Longo family murders that we just dropped. That's a crazy story. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, if you join, you can join at the $5 level. That's where the bonus episodes are. And you get a shout out on the podcast. And then $7 is going to get you two to three mini creeps every month and a sticker that comes in a card with our signatures. It's not going to get you that if you don't put your address, though. Why are y'all... You- why are y'all tripping with the addresses? Why? You gotta put the address. Are you making it so hard for your girl? <laughs> and then $10 level gets you all that plus 20% off of merch. So merch. if you're interested, you can go to patreon.com slash true crime creepers, sign up over there. That would be awesome. Hey, uh, I do have an announcement. Oh, okay. For our lucky winner, who was the first person to send something in the P.O. box, uh-huh. you do have a fun little treat coming your way. By the time this releases, you may already have it. So we did. Okay, we should talk about that. We checked the mailbox and we had so many good letters and goodies. And oh my God, it was so exciting. Valentine's candy from Canada. I mean, we got Canadian candy. We've got all the Mary Kay swag. Oh, yeah. It was fun. Lots of (laughs) Valentine's cards. It was so great starting the P.O. box right around a holiday. I loved all the Valentine's love. Yes. Um, some drawings, some artwork. Uh, I mean, really. It's, we it's loved so it. Mogab has been like, it's. we've been doing it like just a little bit at a time. Like every mm-hmm. day I'll get a Marco Polo from her and she'll do like an <laughs> unwrapping of like a few more of them. It's yes. been so fun. <laughs> and I mean, I've checked it a few times and each time I've gone, there's something in it. So it hasn't been, y'all have not let us down yet. It's been. Uh, oh my gosh. So exciting. Thank you so much. That's really, that's really exciting. It's that's best. It's really fun. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. All right. You ready to get into this case? Do I have a choice? No, you don't. I have you chained to the chair. 
as I do every time we record. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, this arrangement. (laughs) Big thanks to Drake, who sent us an email like almost a year ago suggesting this case. Yes. (laughs) Wait, have you seen that video? No, what video? It's like Soldier Boy is like in some recording, like he's at a radio station and they're interviewing him and someone like compared him to Drake. And he's like, Drake! (laughs) So anytime I can do that, uh, which is not very often, I like to, Drake! I'm going to find the audio and I want you to slide the clip in here. (laughs) Okay, I'll try. (laughs) He specifically said I should tell you about this case because it happened in your own backyard. My backyard? Your backyard. Of the Commonwealth or like my backyard? (laughs) Kind of of the Commonwealth. This is actually in Indiana, but it's like right by Louisville. Yeah, it's like 10 minutes. Louisville. Louisville. I hop over to Indiana anytime I want Torchy's Tacos. Is that weird for you to just – because I was actually looking at Louisville on a map like yesterday, and I was like, Cincinnati? (laughs) And then I was like, Indianapolis? Like you can hit three states? That would take me 10 hours. Yeah, it's very bizarre. Uh, So thank you, Drake, so much for the suggestion, because this is uh, quite the story. Drake. Today, I am telling you about the Cam family murders. Really, I'm telling you about the trials of David Cam. There's a lot of court stuff in this one, but it's all very interesting. A big thank you to our sources for this episode. For this one, I mainly pulled from an episode of Dateline and an episode of the podcast Unraveled, which is an awesome podcast. This was season three, episode one, and their entire season three focuses on expert witnesses and trials. It's really interesting. We'll get into some of it here. Also, a few articles that I will have linked in the show notes. And by me, I mean Mogab. It was September 28th, 2000, a Thursday. And every Thursday, 36-year-old David Cam, he would go to the rec center at his church, and he would play in a pickup game of basketball. This is in Georgetown, Indiana. Basketball is a very big deal in Indiana, apparently. They just love it there. While David plays basketball, his wife Kim is taking care of their two kids, 7-year-old Brad and 5-year-old Jill. And on this particular Thursday, Kim had dropped Jill off at her mom's on her way to take Brad to swim practice. And usually David would get home in time to help with the kids after practice. He'd help with homework and putting them to bed. But this night, the games ran a little later than usual. And David was really worried that Kim would be mad that he hadn't been there to help. So a little after nine, David made the five-minute drive from the church to his house. And he pushed the button to open his garage door. And he saw Kim's Bronco parked on the left side of the garage as he expected. But then he saw someone lying on the floor of the garage. He thought it was his daughter, Jill, at first, but he got out of his car and he ran over to them. And when he got closer, he realized it was his wife, Kim. She wasn't moving and there was a pool of blood running from her head. So David started panicking. He's thinking of his kids. Where were his kids? The horrible answer was right in front of him. The doors to the Bronco were open and he leaned in through the front passenger door and he looked toward the back seat and he saw them there. What in the hell? Jill was slumped over on the passenger side of the car in the back seat. She appeared to have a head wound, and David could see that she was gone. Brad was next to her, and David thought there might be a chance for him. He thought he might be able to save him. And he reached for him, and he thought he felt warm, and maybe he could help him. And so he leaned in through the center console, through the front of the car, and he grabbed Brad, and he pulled him from the car, and he set him on the floor of the garage. 
and he started performing CPR on him right away. But he could see the boy's eyes now, and they were dry and half shut, and it was obvious that he was gone. David was a former state trooper with the Indiana State Police. He'd been a trooper for over 10 years. And so instead of 911, he called the state police post where he knew most of the people that were working there. As soon as someone picked up, it was one of his former colleagues, David just started yelling, just screaming at him. They needed to get everyone out to his house. Now his family was dead. And the guy on the other end of the line tried to calm him down, telling him everything's going to be okay. And David said, everything is not okay. Get everyone out to my house now. He raced across the street to his uncle Nelson's house and started banging on the door, just screaming that someone had killed his family. (gasps) Nelson was out of the door quickly, and he ran over to the house with him. Nelson was also a former state trooper, and he knew the crime scene had to be preserved. So he was careful not to mess with anything. And helplessly, he checked each member of David's family before telling him, I think they're all gone. (sighs) David just laid down on the ground and screamed. He kept saying, why did I have to go? Why didn't I stay here with them? Nelson kept David from going back in the garage to make sure that the crime scene was protected. And David said it was completely surreal in just the worst way possible. The state police arrived at David's house within minutes of that phone call. And most of the police investigating happened to be David's friends and former colleagues. But these state troopers were not about to let their relationship with Dave get in the way of them doing their jobs. When they got to the scene, they just couldn't make a lot of sense out of it. A triple homicide in Georgetown, Indiana. That's home to less than 3,000 people, and most of them were David's family. David was a member of the Lockhart family, which was a huge family in the community. Even the road he lived on was named after them, Lockhart Road. He'd spent his whole life in Georgetown. In the late 80s, a friend had introduced him to Kim Wren, and by 1989, they were married. They both put so much into their careers, David into his time as a state trooper, where he eventually became a member of an elite emergency kind of SWAT team. And Kim was an accountant and a financial analyst. Ah, they sound so cute. I know. Four years after they were married, they had Brad, and then two years later, Jill was born, and the two siblings were so different. Brad was very quiet and sweet. He was a great swimmer, and his family said he loved dressing up like his favorite Disney characters. Oh, yes. I know. And they said Jill was just a spitfire. She was described as quite the character. She was always looking to be the center of attention. She was so funny, and like funny five-year-olds are just the best kind of five-year-olds, you know? About four months before the murders, David decided he wanted to be around for the kids more, so he decided to leave his job as a state trooper, and he started working for his uncle Sam Lockhart's waterproofing business. They did, among other things, they would, like, waterproof basements and stuff like that. Basements. Still blows my mind. I agree. concept. (laughs) As is pretty usual in these cases, the family seemed so happy, like they were living this picture-perfect life. But the investigation into these murders would reveal the cracks behind the facade, and it would become clear that all was not as it appeared. But he couldn't have murdered them. (gasps) Why are you taking it? (laughs) At the scene, police arrive to find a ribbon of blood running out of the garage and down the driveway. Kim is lying on the ground by the passenger door of the Bronco with her pants off. 
And their first impression is that it looked like a sexual assault, and then the kids were killed because they were witnesses. That was kind of the first theory that they were going with with this crime. Brad was on his back on the floor of the garage with his arms stretched out, and there was a gray sweatshirt lying near him. And that gray sweatshirt will become very important later on. The troopers at the scene start to observe David, and they think he's acting weird. They start questioning his behavior. He's going from sobbing to anger to just a zombie. Someone tries to give him a hug, and he brushes them off. He doesn't want a hug. And they're not sure if this is how someone whose family had just been murdered would act. You know I love Mm. this. You know I love this. I absolutely love it when uh, small-town cops think they're experts in human behavior. Because honestly, everything that was described is exactly how I would expect someone to behave if there was an expectation of behavior. I don't want to be like touched or hugged when I have like a stomach ache. Absolutely not. Do not get off of me. I'm because I'm not ready to mourn. Like I'm not I'm not mourning right now. We're not hugging. You're not going to tell me how sorry you are for me. Like this isn't happening, you know? And also the this isn't how someone who who their whole family was murdered should act as if that's a very common experience that we've all had so we know how we should act it's not right. like it's not how someone who has a headache acts like that's not someone who just saw their murdered wife and kids act because we've all seen that like right we've what, all seen this over and over test? yeah right what is your what is your litmus test it reminds me of that teacher in the Adnan Syed case that was like really offended when she tried to give Adnan a hug after the news had broken that Heyman Lee had been murdered. And he was like really awkward. He didn't hug her back. And she took that to mean, oh, he must not care about this murder. So he must have done it. Like, <laughs> and then like, when I take that as like, I just don't want to hug my teacher. Right. Like, get off of me. This is weird. We don't have that kind of relationship. Like, sometimes people don't want hugs when they're experiencing heavy emotions. And sometimes people just don't want hugs. Yeah. I'm not one of those people. I generally love hugging. But when I'm experiencing heavy, yeah, I'm like, don't, don't touch me right now. Yeah. But obviously, they're going to look at the husband first. Like, you have to. Obvious. But it seems like this went beyond just looking into him. Almost from the jump, they suspected David had done this. While crime scene tape is being put up around David's house, his uncle Sam went to let Kim's parents know what had happened. Their names are Janice and Frank Wren. And when Sam told them that their daughter and two of their grandchildren had been murdered, Janice said her mind just went blank. Frank slid down to the floor and cried. Neither of them could believe that this had happened. They loved Kim, Jill, and Brad so much, and they'd just seen them. Their minds couldn't fathom how they could just be gone in an instant. I can't imagine get like having to deliver the news that someone has died, but not just like someone like your grandkid, like multiple, right. this whole family, basically. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't understand that. Everyone you love. Back at the crime scene, the crime scene techs examined the Bronco. They took measurements. They took pictures. Almost all of the troopers in his garage were people David knew, people that he'd served with. In fact, the lead investigator on the case was David's childhood friend. And one of the first things he told David right at the scene was that they'd have to clear him first before they could move on to other suspects. And David was a former cop. He knew the drill. He knew you always looked at the spouse first. So he wasn't worried. He was like, these are my friends, my brothers, people he'd been through really tough stuff with. And he was confident that they were going to do everything that they could to find who killed his family. They brought David back to the station to question him. And they first had him walk through his and Kim's day as much as he could. He said as far as he knew, she followed her usual busy routine. She went to work, and then she took the kids around to their after-school activities, and then she would have gotten home with the kids around 7.30. 
And he said that he had been over at the church playing basketball from 7 to 9.15. And there were 11 other people that were there and could vouch for him. I mean, you can't get much stronger of an alibi than 11 people all saying he was there. Well, except for the person you said that last time when the guy was on video with 200 people in an airport. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Halloween candy. Um, (laughs) So they asked David if anyone had been stalking Kim or bothering her at all. And they also had a question about the crime scene, something they found really odd. Kim's shoes. Like this, this was a very messy crime scene. Everything about it was chaotic. But her shoes had been placed very neatly onto the roof of the Bronco. That's where they'd been found. They asked David if Kim ever took off her shoes while she was driving, and David said never. That is the only way I drive. I was going to say, I always take my shoes off. I learned to drive barefoot, so there are certain shoes I can't drive in. (laughs) Like, literally can't. Investigators wrapped up the interview by getting David some fresh clothes so that they could send in his sneakers and his t-shirt that had blood on them. Investigators start canvassing the neighborhood. They started asking people if they'd seen or heard anything suspicious, and no one could believe that this had happened. Everyone was just completely stunned. David was a complete mess. He'd had to get on medication to deal with it. He said, no one is prepared to buy caskets and burial plots for their little kids. (sighs) Three days after the murders, David spoke with the media on camera. He said he wanted his wife back, his babies back, and he asked the killer to turn himself in. And that same day, Indiana State Police called him in for a second interview. And this time, the cops he was interviewing with were like old work buddies, guys he would chat about cases with or have a cup of coffee with, like guys he knew well. David expected this interview to go much like the first, a formality to clear him as a suspect. But this time was different. Investigators have been gathering evidence. And all their evidence had been pointing back to David as the murderer. They believed that between 9.15 and 9.30, the night of the murders, David returned home. It was around that time that a neighbor said he'd heard shots fired, and this was after David returned home at 9.20. But David told them that that person must be confused because they're wrong. No shots were fired after he'd gotten home from the game. But this ear witness wasn't the only evidence police had. And that's, that's a real term. Ear witness? Yes, I learned that in Veronica Mars. <laughs> okay. There was physical evidence that would end up being the smoking gun for the prosecution. The t-shirt that David was wearing that night had minuscule drops of blood, later confirmed to be Jill's blood. And according to their crime scene expert, the only way to get that pattern of blood was from the blowback from a gunshot wound. <gasps> it's called high-velocity blood spatter. The state police weren't really experienced enough with blood spatter to be able to tell all of this. So the prosecutor had to- Blood spatter or splatter? Spatter. Blood spatter. Really? I think splatter is you ear. splatter. Yeah, that's grosser. But like spatter is not a word, is it? Blood spatter. Yeah. So the prosecutor had decided to go out of state for an expert. There was this guy, Rod Englert. He was out in Oregon and they'd used him before. He was someone that had helped them get several convictions in the past. But when they reached out to him, Rod said he was busy. He couldn't come. So he offered to send out his protege, Rob Stites. I'm too busy in the spatter game. (laughs) Too busy in the spatter game to get out there. So he sent out Rob Stites. So Rob Stites flew out to Indiana and he went to David's house. 
And he looked through the garage and the Bronco and he made all these notes and marked the blood spots. And he pointed out several areas that he interpreted to be high velocity blood spatter. And then he looked at the t-shirt David was wearing and basically said right there at the scene, yup, David Cam did it. What? I don't understand. Because of the blood spatter on his shirt being high velocity blood spatter. I know, but I don't spatter. understand. Quit saying spatter. That's what I'm going to be saying blood spatter a lot. <laughs> when they brought David in for this second interview, he had no idea there'd been this world-renowned blood spatter expert that had <laughs> named him. I'm going to say yeah. it so many. This comes up so many times. We're well, going to have to get over this. I know, but now we just escalated a world-renowned <laughs> spatter. Spattering. <laughs> Spat, yes. So when they brought David in for this second interview, he had no idea there'd been this world-renowned blood spatter expert that had named him as the guilty party to the police. They told him what Rob Stites had said, and David said, I don't care what your expert says. You're wrong. Your expert's wrong. I believe him, which I'm going to wish <laughs> I didn't say him. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. hours after the interview ended, Police had an arrest warrant from the Florida Superior Court. David was arrested and charged with the murders of his wife and two children. The blood spatter proved it. Sam Lockhart, David's uncle, quickly became his most passionate advocate. He owned a successful local business, so he was a pillar of the community and people would listen to him. He started doing whatever he could to clear David's name. Meanwhile, Kim's parents, Janice and Frank, are in mourning. And they're having a really tough time absorbing the information that was being thrown at them. You know, they find out that David was arrested and charged with the murders and that the police think that he did it. But they didn't know what to think. They were just going by what the police said. But before long, the Wrens became convinced, 100% certain, that David had murdered his entire family. Why? 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 I cannot answer that question. Are you? Are you convinced? Are you convinced? Well, the blood spatter proved it. (laughs) (laughs) I was a world-renowned blood spatter expert in his garage. The trial began on January 7th, 2002, 15 months after the murders. Jurors were selected from Johnson County instead of Floyd County because of all the media coverage of the crime in Louisville. David pleaded not guilty. He was certain that he'd be able to prove his innocence. So wait, this was like getting a lot of attention in Louisville? Yes, because it's like right next to Georgetown. Georgetown's like right there. The state's original theory of the crime was that the murders had occurred around 930 after David got home from that basketball game. You know, there was that ear witness, heard the gunshots. But by trial, they realized that actually all of the evidence told them that the murders had happened between 730 and 8 o'clock. Only... David was playing basketball at the church rec center from 7 to 9.15. There were 11 witnesses that all said so. So the prosecution's new theory was that since David only lived about five minutes away from the church, he'd been able to duck out of the game during one game that he wasn't playing in, run home, commit the murders, and then get back to the church before anyone even noticed that he was gone. Police had some evidence to back up this theory. There was a call to a customer of David's that went out at 719. The state said that no one else in the house would have made that phone call, so he had to have been home at the time. 
David thought his saving grace at trial was going to be the 11 witnesses that had all seen him playing basketball during the time of the murders. He thought that would seal the deal. Case closed. He couldn't have been there. All 11 basketball players testified that there was no way David could have left the gym and none of them noticed that he was gone. Right. He was literally in the game. <laughs> right. Well, they were. there was this one game that he wasn't playing in. And well, that's yeah, when but... they said he like made his break. But then he was back by the next game. But after the prosecutor cross-examined them, it looked like the basketball players wouldn't have even noticed if Shaq walked onto the court and joined their game. That's the extent of my basketball knowledge. I was just about to say, D. <laughs> you could have said Michael Jordan. They wouldn't have even noticed if Michael Jordan. I was gonna Shaq say, is much larger. They definitely would notice Shaq. He's well, that's like what I'm giant. saying. That was that was the point. They yes. wouldn't have even noticed if gigantic Shaq had walked onto the court and joined Shaquille. their game. This reminds me of when you were questioned about that car accident in that lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And you said they were asking you questions like months or years or however long after it was yeah. later about like what lane you'd been in when you'd been yeah. driving. That's like basically two years ago. That's basically what they did here. They asked questions like, how many points did you score in the first game? And this is, again, a year and a half later. You know, how many <laughs> points did you score in the first game? Do you remember who scored the first basket? Who did you guard in the second like game? Like it's a national championship game. Right. He can remember the rest of his life. Not like something he does every Thursday at a rec center. Right. And of course, most of them couldn't remember all those details. And it really undermined their credibility. That is crazy. What I color agree. was your shirt on last Wednesday? I have seven dresses that I wear to work. I cycle <laughs> no. through them. I can't remember which one I wore Monday. I'm like, have I worn this one this week yet? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. The state made a big deal about that phone call at 719 that was made to a customer of David's. Essentially, that's the state's smoking gun. To them, this proved that David's alibi was false. But to me, that phone call makes this whole thing even more weird. Like, he was able to leave the game, kill his family, and then what? Like, decided now was a vital time to make a phone call to a customer? Right. When he was, when he was trying to get back as quickly as possible to the, the church and make sure that nobody knew he was home? Are people saying he did that to like, so that we would think this, you know? No, because this is proving that he was home, this phone call. So that doesn't make any sense to me. So the defense had a witness from Verizon come up that testified that the timestamp of the phone call wasn't accurate because of the jumbled time zones in Indiana. Some counties are in Central and some are in Mm -hmm. Eastern. And that David had actually made that phone call at 619 before he left for the basketball games, which just in general makes a whole lot more sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kentucky is also like that. And let me tell you, it's very confusing when you've got to get somewhere. Yeah, I mean, Texas, we've got El Paso, but that's like so far away. It's never a big deal unless I'm going to visit my dad in New Mexico. Oh, I didn't know they were in a separate time zone because I've always mm-hmm. thought like Texas is so big and we're all we're all central. How is this? It's just El Paso, just El Paso, and it's in just Mountain. Yeah, just it's just the tip, and they're in Mountain the time. Yeah. Yes. Then there came the issue of motive. Like, what motive would David possibly have had to murder his entire oh, family? Oh, he's having an affair. Originally, (laughs) originally, it looked like Kim had been the victim of a sexual assault, but police started to think that that had been staged to look like a motive. Prosecutors said the real motive was that David was not a faithful husband. And boy, did they have the evidence to prove that. Oh, no. 
I don't like them anymore. The state spent weeks putting woman after woman after woman on the stand and questioning them about their relationships with David. So many. There were 12 women (gasps) in all who testified (sighs) that they'd had relationships with David that ranged from just flirting to prolonged sexual affairs. Starting in 1991, just two years after David and Kim were married. I hope they are all using protection. That's (laughs) what I hope. I do too, yeah. Three of them had been full-on affairs, including a woman named Stephanie Neely that had actually resulted in David and Kim separating in 1994. David had moved out of the house and into an apartment and continued his relationship with Stephanie for a while, but David and Kim had reconciled and he'd moved back in. But it wasn't all sexual affairs. There were also two clients from his work waterproofing basements that said that he'd offered to take care of their bills in other ways. Two other women said David had propositioned them, but they'd turned him down. And the five other women that testified was mostly extensive flirting. At least one of the 12 women, I'm not sure which category she fits into. I don't know if she was the flirter or the affair. Yeah. One of them was another trooper's wife. Oh, God. Okay, David, listen, you skis bag. (laughs) Use a cheater. Mm. I don't know if that makes you a murderer, but you're Mm. not looking. No, it does. It definitely does. It (gasps) always does. You know that, you know that if you're a cheater, you're a murderer. Oh. You know that that's true. Things have escalated since like episode 20. The questioning of these women got really gross. They asked for all the details of their sexual relationship with (sighs) David, but including details like how they shaved their pubic hair. Like, what business is it of yours? The episode of Dateline said that David had used his badge to get sex, which is really gross. It said that he'd pull people over and flirt with them and like try to seduce them. I know. So so gross. I know. So the state used this to show that David's motives for the murders was that his wife was getting in the way of him getting all of the random sex he wanted. He had this lifestyle he wanted to pursue, and she was standing in his way, which I would argue there are 12 women testifying that she did not get in his way. Yeah, Yeah, I would (laughs) say he was doing Here he is, yeah, out there doing it. The most recent of those affairs was like 1997. So it was like three years before the murders Mm. happened. I always wonder, like, does the wife know? Like, you got with 12, it's like you've got to know. Well, I mean, obviously they separated and stuff, but you know, back to you telling me all these stories is I'm about to like commit my life to a a union with someone. You know, I don't know. (sighs) Please, (laughs) please. I'm just saying, Please. like, do they know, you know? like, Yeah, know? she knew she knew because they right. did separate. I don't think she knew that he was out there trying to use his badge and stuff like that. Like, that's gross. I don't think she Still knew bad. that. But she knew that he was having a- affairs. Which makes me think those troopers knew, too, when he was all like, come on, you guys know me. Like, we're like brothers. Yeah, they probably know all your business. Yeah. Yeah. And they probably know that you were with one of the wives. Right. <laughs> so, like... Ooh, bad move. The state talked about how hard Kim worked to take care of the house, to take care of the kids. And all the while, David is out with other women. 
The defense objected to this parade of women because they said it had nothing to do with the murders. The most recent affair had ended three years before the murders, and all it was doing was attacking his character, and it shouldn't be admissible. But the judge sided with the prosecution and decided to allow all of it in. The strongest forensic evidence the state had was that blood spatter evidence on his shirt. Eight tiny specks of blood that supposedly proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Dave had been there when Jill was murdered. The prosecutor put four blood experts up on the stand, one of whom was Rod Englert. He was the blood expert from Oregon that had sent Mm -hmm. Rod Stites out to the scene of the crime. Two Rods. Well, there's Rod and Rob. Rod Englert and Rob Stites. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. At trial... Englert did a few experiments for the jury to explain how blood patterns work and to show them how a transfer smear wouldn't have resulted in the blood spatter on David's shirt. And his testimony was really compelling. There have been dozens of studies in recent years warning about how so many methods that are commonly used in forensic science are just inaccurate. You know, we've Mm -hmm. talked about hair comparison in the Lucky episode and bike mark comparisons in the Melissa Lucio episode. Junk science. Yeah, but blood spatter is right there with it. You know, science that's used should be objective, repeatable, and reliable. And blood spatter evidence is really not any of those things. Despite research saying that these methods are not reliable, they continue to be used. And this has led to a number of wrongful convictions that later resulted in exonerations. And we have shown how hard it is to get an exoneration. Yeah. And despite all of the evidence showing that forensics like blood spatter and bite marks should not be presented, judges continue to allow it into courtrooms because they always have been allowed. So to combat the prosecution's expert witnesses, the defense had to bring in their own experts in blood spatter, two of whom were scientists Terry Labor and Bart Epstein, who work for the Minnesota State Crime Lab. They did their evaluation of the evidence And they could not have disagreed more with the prosecution's expert. Epstein said, and this is just a direct quote, gunshot will produce hundreds of stains coming back. I've never seen, and I believe the other experts for both the prosecution and the defense have indicated that they've never seen just seven small or eight small stains from a gunshot. I've never seen that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there would be more. Yeah, it should be. Yes. Like yes. more than just eight tiny little dots is what I'm picturing. Yes. And many of these eight tiny little dots and that, like almost to where you wouldn't even notice it if you just looked at the shirt. Yeah. Like you you wouldn't really like notice it probably. He noted that many of the bloodstains were along the very bottom of David's T-shirt. But somehow there was no blood spatter on his shorts. It was as if the shirt was away from his shorts at the time the blood got on him. Like he didn't have pants on? That's probably what the prosecution wants to say. But what Epstein thought happened was that as David is reaching into the back seat to grab Brad, his shirt came into contact with Jill's hair because she was slumped over on the passenger side. He's leaning from the passenger side to the driver's side to grab Brad. They think his shirt like came away from his body and brushed up against Jill's hair. And she had droplets of blood in her hair and it left those small deposits. Epstein even did his own experiment in front of the jury. He ran several t-shirts over wigs that had blood on them and produced similar patterns to the one that was on David's t-shirt. Okay. 
I cannot tell what side you are on here. And it is making me angry. I'm totally unbiased in this podcast. I don't know if you've heard. This is a very unbiased podcast. So you're just going to like auction off all of your soapboxes on eBay? (laughs) (laughs) No. We've got soapboxes coming right up. (laughs) I know anytime it's a case that's more about the like aftermath, the courtroom or Uh – Like the trial versus Uh the actual crime. I'm like, oh, here she goes. She's about to (laughs) sound off. Yes. (laughs) But if David didn't do it, then who did? That was the question the defense tried to answer, and they had one piece of evidence pointing them in the right direction. The gray sweatshirt that Brad was lying near when police arrived. It didn't belong to anyone in the house, and DNA tests on the sweatshirt came back with an unknown male's DNA. So it was just a a sweatshirt? Mm Mm-hmm. Lying in the garage. The prosecutor said they ran that DNA through the national database, and there were no matches. And the defense claimed that whoever that sweatshirt belonged to, that was the murderer. Yeah, but why would they leave their sweatshirt in the garage? I mean, that's a question we will never answer. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Yes. David also testified in his own defense. He owned up to his issues with infidelity. He said he knew he'd messed up and the disrespect to Kim was terrible. But you can't jump from adulterer to murderer. We do love but to people do that, be doing though. it you know, all yeah. the time. People sh- really should think about this before they cheat. You know, like if you're ever on trial to murder, that's going to make you look really bad. So you shouldn't do it. <laughs> well, here I was trying to defend it that that's not what it makes you. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> Obviously, it makes you it all they that's where they always go. Oh, he was cheating. And I do think there's a difference between like, okay, you've had multiple affairs, but they've been over for three years. And like, I'm actively in a relationship. And we've talked about getting married. And we've talked about like all of, like, I think that there is a situation for sure where affairs are a motive for murder. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's a blanket statement that you can always say, but... Well, look, I'm bringing my own trampoline so I can jump to any conclusion <laughs> that I would like. <laughs> so... I And I know you haven't seen Office Space, and there's a great jump to conclusion. Yes, I have. Show. Ew. What? <gasps> oh, please. Don't actually. You're shocked. Oh, pl- I, you well, haven't seen I Clueless, am. but you've seen <laughs> Office Space. Okay. All right. Damn it. So the, the jump to conclusions, Matt... <laughs> Oh, yeah. The guy's game. (laughs) Yeah. That's (laughs) – Oh, what a good – what a good movie. That is – I've only seen five movies, so you're right. That is one of them. Yeah. And I I think really what this does, what like infidelity, especially this amount does, it doesn't necessarily make you look guilty. It makes you inherently unlikable. And that is Mm -hmm. just basically impossible to combat when you're being judged by a jury. You know, well, because they're putting everything in one bucket, like it's all a character flaw. Like this is right. a character flaw, and being a murderer also means it's also a character flaw. Sucks, yeah, and it's all one big bucket. Well, you know? cheating makes you a bad person, and so that means that you would be capable of murder, whereas most people are not, and mm-hmm. so you must be a bad person if you did this. Obviously, I think I told you this, but. When I did have to go to trial for that, like, fender mender lawsuit, I had to fill out – it's, like, called discovery, you know, and it's, like, hundreds and hundreds of questions about yourself. And, again, I didn't commit a crime. I was in a car accident. And it asked questions, like, have you ever been dishonest? Have you ever, like – and what a way to phrase that, like, 
have you ever been dishonest? Like, I've never done anything terrible. I'm or not Pinocchio, I ever, but like, I lied about my curfew a few times. Like, right. What or are you like, talking about here? Yeah. It was like, have you ever uh, – there was something about, like, have you ever cheated academically? I mean, it was, like, crazy stuff. And I was like, they, they're trying to get to know every single thing about you. And I remember thinking I was going to answer something wrong. Like, yeah, I don't know. It was just such a weird thing. And, again, I'm right. like, I was in a fender – bender that was not even my fault and i'm having to answer this stuff about my character it was like th- it, that section when there was like oh a title God. heading of like character whatever yikes yeah woof all of this was presented to the jury over the course of nine weeks and they deliberated for three days there wasn't much evidence to review all the prosecution had actually connecting david to the crime was the blood spatter evidence It was essential to their case. Without it, they just don't have any evidence tying David to the crime. So now you have a jury who doesn't like him. They think he's a bad person. So they think he's guilty of this crime. And the blood spatter. Yeah. And the blood spatter is what lets them get there. Yeah. You know, like they know they can't hang their hat on him being a cheater. Right. But they can hang their hat on the blood spatter. Yes. Signed, sealed, delivered. Yeah. Yeah. When they came back, they found David Cam guilty of killing his wife and children. (gasps) David's dad stood up in the courtroom and screamed at them, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. He was sentenced to 195 years in prison. Oh, boy, bye. You're not... You're not making it through that. No, and prison is not a great place to be when you're a former cop. Oh, I'm sure of it. He really had to learn how to survive behind bars. The one glimmer of hope for David was his appeals. And their main point on appeals was that the court had allowed the state to put woman after woman after woman after woman times 12 on the stand to testify about their relationship with him. And this should not have been allowed because of Indiana Evidence Rule 404B, which I have right here, which states this is the law. Evidence of other crimes, wrongs, or acts is not admissible to prove the character of a person in order to show action in conformity therewith. There has to be another reason to allow the evidence in that's relevant to the crime other than just saying, hey, here's a guy who's fine with breaking the rules, so he probably broke this one too. The rule is there so the state can't punish people for being an asshole because we all want to punish assholes. But there is a motive exception to Evidence Rule 404B. The Supreme Court has ruled that motive is always relevant, though they made it clear that that doesn't mean the state can just put up as much evidence as they want about a defendant's bad character and then just call it motive. So I take this to mean that if he'd been having a current affair and they'd talked about getting married and I'm going to kill my wife to be with you and like that kind of thing, that could prove motive and would be allowed in. But the woman Mm -hmm. he flirted with that one time? She did not prove times. any motive. <laughs> the 12 women he flirted with, <laughs> that with those 12 times, yeah. <laughs> she did not prove any motive. And because the prosecutor was unable to connect all of those affairs to the murder, the appeals court agreed and in 2004 his conviction was overturned. But the state wasn't done with him and they announced they fully intended to retry him for the murders. The main piece of evidence the defense was going to use was once again that gray sweatshirt. Remember, in 2001, there had been no matches to the DNA found on it. Uh The defense asked the prosecutor to run it again, but he refused. Yeah, can you just keep running it like once a week? You're like, hey, 
Do it yeah, again. Just spend a million dollars running this sweatshirt over and over. But he refused. Why does it cost so much? And they kept pressing him on it until and he kept refusing to run this DNA until a court order demanded he run it. And this time they get a match. Who is it? The judge. The DNA. Da, da, da. <laughs> the DNA belonged to the judge. No. The DNA belonged to a man named Charles Bonet, which was interesting considering Bonet's DNA had been in the database since three years before the Cam murders had ever even happened. He should have come up the first time. Wait, then what happened? Turns out, oopsie, they'd sent in the wrong sample the first time around, <gasps> and that's why they'd gotten no matches. Despite oh, the prosecutor who? assuring them over and over that the sample had been sent and just hadn't matched to anyone. No, who's losing their job over that? That's Literally nobody. Ugh. So who's Charles Bonet? Well, Charles Bonet, DNA. Bonet was a criminal who was known to be violent towards women. Back in the 80s, he'd been a student at Indiana University where he had started a bizarre series of crimes. There were at least four incidents of him knocking a woman down and then taking off with one of her shoes. Newspapers called him the shoe bandit, which sounds lighthearted and hilarious, but he was actually super creepy. Like sometimes he'd wear masks like China doll masks while he ran around swiping shoes. (laughs) Swiping shoes. The shoe bandit was finally caught, and he said that he'd done it because he has an obsession with women's feet. Uh, I hate this. (laughs) He pleaded guilty to being the shoe bandit. And after that is when his crimes became more violent. This time he started carrying a gun and threatening the women that he attacked. His most recent attack involved an armed robbery and kidnapping three women at once. He'd been watching them for a while. And then one night he just walked into their apartment with a gun and kidnapped them into his car. Luckily, someone saw him doing this and called the police. Yeah. He was sentenced to 20 years for this, but he only served seven. He was out on parole when the Cam murders occurred, and the defense said that he still had the compulsion to attack women that he had before. He also had a foot fetish. He admitted this to police, and he even discussed it with several news outlets. Several of the women that he attacked reported that in the months leading up to the attacks, they'd received harassing phone calls asking them what they were wearing and if they were wearing high heels. Kim Cam's shoes had been found on the roof of the Bronco, lined up very neatly in the middle of a very messy crime scene. It was a I detail. I feel like that would have drawn, I would have noticed that. Well, I told you that. No, I'm saying like, I feel like, I guess if they don't know that, that that's something, you know, they don't know that they're looking for like a shoe bandit situation. <laughs> but I feel like I would have been like, This is weird as fuck. Right. Doesn't it fit so perfectly? And it was a detail that hadn't made sense to investigators, these shoes up on the roof. And there were bruising and abrasions on both of Kim's feet. Like Hmm. the top of her feet and her toes had bruising and abrasions. Charles Bonet was brought in for questioning and they grilled him about how his sweatshirt wound up in the middle of a crime scene at at a home he had no connection to. And it was definitely his sweatshirt. It was actually his prison sweatshirt. And it even had the name Backbone written on the back of the shirt collar, which was his prison nickname. It literally had his name on the sweatshirt. I am thinking so many things. One, I didn't know you got personalized gear. 
too. It made me think of how we would wear those popped collar polos that said like <laughs> Delta Gamma underneath. Like, why are we doing that? You think they were inspired by prison? For the record, prison. I have never worn a popped collar that said something on the bottom of it. <laughs> I think I have something right. I think I have something still. Oh, God. What do you got there? What do you got in your hand? Like, why is that? <laughs> I, this is like a recent. Yeah. Uh, Mogab has a collared sweatshirt with a monogram on the back of the collar. <laughs> of course you do. Like, I'm and that was very reachable. She literally just stood up and grabbed it. Because I, I forgot about that. I was like, I think I just wore that the other day. <laughs> and it's not 2007. Yeah. So I this is what Bonet that. says. He says that he at one time had had that sweatshirt. But he donated it to the Salvation Army. And apparently the cams were in the market for prison sweatshirts with nicknames on the back. And they had purchased that from the Salvation Army. And that's how it wound up in their garage. Okay. Night. Have you ever gone thrifting, though? Yes. Because I, f- I do feel like if I just saw a gray shirt that said backbone <laughs> on <laughs> I would maybe. I wonder if it also <laughs> says, like, Indiana... Department of Corrections on it. <laughs> that to me it seems like a honestly. Prime. If I found a Department <laughs> of Corrections sweatshirt, I would immediately. I know. Now buy I'm it. like, can I just like go get a hoodie made that has like backbone on that? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, 
in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. This interrogation of Charles went on for 12 hours, and Charles stuck to his story. You know, he's never been to David Camp's house. He donated that sweatshirt. But the detectives didn't have enough to hold him, so they let him go with a warning, telling him that if they found anything else to tie him to the crime scene, he would be charged. Bonet said he wasn't worried because he hadn't been there. But he had been there. And it wasn't long before they had so much evidence to prove it. There'd been a palm print on the exterior passenger door of the Bronco. They'd known about this palm print for four years, but they hadn't been able to figure out whose it was until now, which hello means there's another person, but whatever. The palm print came back belonging to Charles Bonet. Why did they wait so long on the palm print? (laughs) Because David Cam did it, Mogab. I don't know. I because I'm like, well, they he wasn't in the system, but he was in the system and his fingerprints would have been in the system. So I don't know why they didn't know it was his before. So now the interrogation heats up. They reminded him on several occasions about how likely it was that he would get the death penalty since he was a black man accused of killing a white family, which is my least favorite way to get a confession. And they told him the best way to avoid the death penalty, which would be to testify against David Camp. Which reminds me so much of the Richard Glossop case, which was our numero yep. uno episode, where what's his name, stupid guy, Justin whatever, was mm-hmm. told. Sneed. Justin Sneed. Oh my God, how did I remember that? I don't, I don't know, but anything. that was amazing. Justin Sneed was told that he was going to get the death penalty unless he said that Richard uh, had helped him. And so he said Richard told him to do it. Oh my God. I mean, just feeding people lines. Yeah, it was somewhere around this, like, death penalty threat where Bonet's story started to change. It actually would change at least five times before trial. Bonet's got a little Justin Sneed in him. He's got a little Jay Wilds in him. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, just playing that part. But the story he landed on was this, all right? He'd met David Cam briefly when he was playing basketball in July of 2000 in a local park. It was just a pickup game and he didn't know anyone else there. So don't ask anybody else because nobody else saw me, you know. And it was right after he'd been released from prison. David and Bonet had gotten to talking after the game and David had found out he'd just been released from prison. About a week before the murders, they run into each other again, just by happenstance, at a convenience store and they started talking again. And during this conversation, David asked Bonet if he could get him an untraceable weapon. And Bonet said, Hmm. no problem. He got a handgun that day and met up with him in a parking lot where he exchanged the handgun for $250. Oh. Yeah. David then asked for a second weapon. And Bonet said, sure. But David wanted this one brought to his home, dropped off at the house. So Bonet followed David home to see where he lived. And David told him to meet him there on Thursday at 7 with the second gun. And, you know, he had to do that because there were absolutely no text messages, phone calls, like messages of any kind. So he had to follow him home so he knew where he lived. And then they had these planned meetings, you know, 
in advance. Right. Listen, men men are never planning meetings in advance. (laughs) Right. So. So David told him to meet him there on Thursday at 7 with the second gun. So Bonet said Mm -hmm. he got there around 7, and he handed the gun to David wrapped in his gray sweatshirt. And that's how the sweatshirt got there, you know. They stood outside the garage exchanging pleasantries for a few minutes until the garage door started to open and Kim pulled up in the Bronco with the kids in the back. Charles said it sounded like Kim and David were arguing in the garage and he heard her say no very firmly. And then he heard a pop. And I'm sorry, when a gun is that close, it does not sound like pop. It's a bang. That is a bang. Anyways, he heard one of the kids say daddy. And then he heard two more pops, and he knew he had to get out of there fast. But before he could leave, David comes out of the garage pointing the gun at him. But when David tried to shoot him, lucky, the gun jammed. So Charles, like, Bonet went after him. David ran into the house, and Bonet went to follow him. And he ran through the garage, and he saw, you know, Kim on the ground by the car door. And he said he tripped over her shoes, and then he decided to touch them. And now he's like, oh, no, I've touched evidence at the crime scene. So he picked the shoe up to try and wipe it off. And that's how the shoe got on the roof of the car. This is a very serious story. I was, like, trying so hard. And you started messing around with the shoes. And I was like, no. Cinderella, get out of here. Yeah. (laughs) He saw the kids in the car. And it suddenly dawned on him that David was a former state trooper. And he probably had more weapons in the house that he was going to go get. Yeah, like the second one, you told them that you'd given him two, whatever. So Bonet had to get out of there. And he says he's sure that if he'd stuck around, David would have killed him and then blamed all the murders on him. So what do you Mm -hmm. think about that story? Uh, Well, it is the most uh, ridiculous thing I've heard in at least one week. (laughs) (laughs) So... So much of this story makes no sense to me. There's two things that I really get hung up on with this story. First is the timing. Remember, David's taken a break from a basketball game. He's yeah. he's left during the game that he's not playing in, and he's trying to get back before anybody notices him. And he does. He gets back without anybody noticing that he's left. Right. But he had time to meet Charles at the house, exchange pleasantries outside the garage, And then Kim happens to get home right then while Charles is still there. And I could maybe believe that David timed his break from the basketball game to get home right when Kim was supposed to arrive back home. Like he probably knew what time she would be there. And he's like, oh, it's 730. She's going to be home. I'm going to leave. It really was five minutes away. I looked it up. And then but when you add Charles in there, it doesn't make any sense that he would be able to plan what time he's meeting Charles. And then keep him around while he kills his family and then to try to blame it on him. And then if he was going to shoot Charles and try to blame it on Charles Bonet. So I go back and forth calling him both. But then who was going to be the one that killed Charles? Because David is back at the basketball game. Right. So if he's trying to say like, oh, I saw him. He killed my family. And so I killed him. Well, no, because you were at the basketball game. That was your alibi. Right. But then, don't forget, David goes inside and calls one of his customers. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the phone call. (laughs) And then he makes it back to the basketball game, all with nobody noticing that he's left. All right. But we don't know why Bonet is like, I mean, this story is whatever. (laughs) I'm choosing not to believe that. But we don't know why he is like chosen this house and this family. 
No. Other than what he's saying here. And he's, but he's had a criminal history of just attacking random. random people. They've never been people he knew before. But was he ever going into like people's homes? I thought it was Yeah. More like- he, he attacked those three women. He had like oh. stalked them and watched them. And then he, yeah. he barged into their apartment, held them up at gunpoint, and then that tried to get know. them to leave with him in his car. And they, he did. They did. They got in the car with him. And somebody called the police and, and they were saved. The other thing I get hung up on with this story is him talking about touching the shoes, you know, because <laughs> all of this is happening. All right. You're running because you think, think gonna he's going to kill you. Yeah. And you've tripped over Kim, like you've tripped over her shoes, which are presumably attached to her feet, right? Her shoes. He said, I tripped over her shoes. Presumably they would be on her feet. Yeah. Because she's out of the Bronco. She's on the floor by the Bronco. So he trips over her feet. The shoes come off her feet. And, you know, as he knows David is going to get a gun, he picks up the shoes and then neatly places them on the roof of the Bronco. Like, the story just does not make sense. And there, there's uh-huh. a lot of other issues with this story. But either way, the police are buying this hook, line, and sinker. And, like, all the bruising on her feet. Right. You know? Okay. He's got this weird foot thing that he's admitted to in the past. He he later tries to say, I never said that. But he he's on record. I mean, he said it. And he stole all those people's shoes, all those women's shoes back in college. So anyways, either way, police are buying this hook, line, and sinker. Charles and David are clearly in cahoots because of that cahoots blood spatter again. evidence. You know, the blood spatter. <laughs> yeah, the eight little dots. But their relationship was David's most secret one of all. You know, they were able to track down 12 women that David had had relationships with or flirted with, but no one could find a single phone call or text message between them, and no one had ever seen them together. So basically, there was zero evidence to support Bonet's theory, not even a single cell phone ping. Are we pinging cell phones back then? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, this was two years after Adon's case. Oh, yeah. But you know who Bonet was busy calling? The Floyd County Prosecutor's Office. He called them 33 times, phone calls that were unrecorded and undocumented, all within the two-week time frame after his DNA was identified and before he was arrested. How do we know if they're undocumented? 33 times. Like phone logs? Then they're documented, yes? You just mean like not like what was said? Like, they didn't write down. Yeah. Yeah. There were no notes about these phone calls. And you would expect, like, if a prosecutor is talking to, you know, a suspect in a crime, he he might write down a thing or two that might that, that person some- said. <laughs> might jot something down. David was yeah. pissed. He said that Charles Bonet's signature was all over this crime. He has a history of attacking, of attacking women. He takes their shoes. He holds a gun to their head and threatens to shoot them. All of that is exactly what happened to Kim. He felt the Had he charges. Ever killed kids before? No, but I think the kids. I don't think he was after the kids. They were just there, yeah, as witnesses. You know, I didn't know. Yeah, he David felt the charges should have been dismissed against him, but the state was stuck on that blood spatter evidence. Oh my gosh! Like to really? them, yes, to them that was the most compelling piece of evidence. That David Cam was involved. Not the sweatshirt. I mean, that's what's crazy to me. Mm. Well, that's the most compelling evidence that Charles Bonet was involved. But the most compelling evidence that David Cam was involved was that blood spatter. On the, I know, but... 
I agree. On the on the unresolved podcast, the prosecutor said there were experts on both sides saying opposite things. So one side is clearly wrong. And if you believe the state's experts, he was guilty. Instead, in January of 2006, Charles Bonet and David Cam had separate trials in two different courthouses. At Bonet's trial, the prosecution maintained that he could not have been the shooter because David was the one with the high-velocity blood spatter on his shirt. That meant that David absolutely, 100%, had to have been present at the shooting. Charles's sweatshirt did not have high-velocity blood spatter, so he could not have been the shooter. Bonet was found guilty on three counts of murder for the deaths of Kim, Brad, and Jill Cam, and he was sentenced to 225 years in prison. Holy moly. It's a lot of years. Yeah. Again. David's, he'll be eligible for parole in 2259. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm, not making it. David's second trial began on January 17th, 2006. And there were several things that went much different from the first. First, Bonet was named as the other man at the scene that had also been charged with the murders. And the jury heard his whole story of what he said happened. He didn't testify, but they heard the story. Mm -hmm. They did not see any evidence backing this up, like phone calls, text messages being seen together. Nothing. Just Bonet's story and those eight spots of blood on David's shirt. The second biggest difference was, of course, that they did not bring back all of those women to testify about David's infidelity. Yeah. This left the state without a motive. So at this trial, the state accused David of molesting his five-year-old daughter, Jill, based on a single blunt force trauma injury to Jill's vagina. The state said that Kim had found out about it and that she was going to leave him, and David couldn't let his secret get out, so he killed her. But this story was completely made up by the prosecution, and I just cannot believe the liberties that they're able to take in these trials. David was never charged with sexual molestation because they couldn't prove that he'd done it. The medical examiner's report did not indicate that the blunt force trauma was due to molestation, and the defense argued that the bruising occurred during the attack. The state did have a pathologist testify that the injuries were consistent with molestation having occurred within 24 hours of her death. But the defense said that there's no evidence that it was David or that Kim had found out, and if there was evidence of that, it would be that Bonet had done it. Once again, they focused real hard on that blood spatter evidence. They had Rod Englert come again to testify, and he was an awesome witness, mainly because he had this great presentation to show the jury. Like, it was entertaining. It kept him engaged. It was very persuasive. All the defense had was, like, actual scientists telling the jury that Rod Englert was wrong. And I think it's really important to note here that Rod Englert is not a scientist. I looked up his website, englertforensics.com, and he has a bachelor's degree in police administration. He did postgraduate work in psychology, which usually means they did not complete the degree when they say did postgraduate work. work. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of like graduate degree in. Right. It says his uh, expertise is in the area of homicide, crime scene reconstruction, and blood spatter interpretation, but it doesn't give any information about where he got that expertise from, like where he learned that, except Mm -hmm. that he graduated from the FBI National Academy, which I looked up, 
And it's a 10-week professional development program. So unless Um, that made him an expert. situation. Right. And then other than that, it's just been a ton of experience looking at blood spatter at crime scenes. But I'm like, that doesn't teach you what blood spatter means. You know, that doesn't like, where did you become an expert? Right. You're just almost like shadowing or not shadowing, but like you just keep doing it. Seeing it and thinking that it. Yeah. So Bart Epstein and Terry Labor are uh, scientists in the Minnesota State Crime Lab. And scientists' testimonies tend to be a bit more dry and boring, just straight to the point facts, you know. Englert honestly kind of reminds me of Richard Gere in Chicago, which I know you've never seen. But he's like, I've seen Richard Gere, okay. Just give him the old razzle dazzle, razzle dazzle him. That's what he's doing. But the prosecution had more than just Englert. They also had Rob Stites. Remember, this was the guy Englert had sent in his stead to the crime scene who had been the one to discover that the blood spatter was high velocity. Rob Stites, and I don't know which one's Rob and which one's Rod, but look, we're back at Rod here. Or Rob. (laughs) Rob Stites was an impressive witness on the stand, and he had excellent credentials. He was a crime scene reconstructionist who was studying for his PhD in fluid dynamics. He was working as an adjunct professor at Portland State University, and he'd worked hundreds of cases. So even though it doesn't seem like Englert had the science background to really be considered an expert in his field, at least the prosecution had one witness about the blood spatter that actually had the credentials to be considered an expert, you know? Only it turns out that was all a lie. Every single word of it. The closest Rob Stites had ever come to processing a crime scene was one time he'd guarded a crime scene while he was working (laughs) as a police officer. (laughs) Wait a second. Yeah. This is alarming. <laughs> That's like me saying mm-hmm. I am a five-star chef because I can make a cheese omelet at the Waffle House. It's like you saying that in a court of law under <laughs> oath on the witness stand. <gasps> when it has to do with murder. <laughs> when you're accusing somebody of murder based on evidence that you found and interpreted. Man, that's like the ultimate catfish, is it not? Mm-hmm. It turns out that he was just a crime scene photographer that Englert had sent out to the crime scene to take some pictures for him since he hadn't been able to go out himself. And I wonder if Englert knew that Rob Stites was testifying to all of this because I'm like, wouldn't, but they tend to like keep witnesses out of the trial. Yeah. So maybe he didn't know that he was there testifying to all of this. This is the guy. I feel like that's got to come up. In a conversation, though. I, not if Rob Stites doesn't want him to know. You know, he's not going to tell yeah. him. Yeah, I guess. This is the guy that police think is some world-renowned blood spatter expert. <laughs> oh, I'm... <laughs> he's pointing I'm to blood spatter all over the garage and on David's t-shirt like, saying, oh, it's- yes, this is high-velocity blood spatter. I'm certain of it. This guy doesn't it's have like any idea you- <laughs> what he's talking about. It's like when you look up at the clouds and you're like, I see it's cumulus. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of the shapes. Yeah. Oh, I see a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, like that's what I'm picturing. Over here, cumulus it's Orion's use? belt. <laughs> In that blood. Was my face. <laughs> yeah. This guy. So, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Right. 
Well, Rob Stites had testified at the first trial, and a few things seemed off to the defense. So after the trial, during the appeals, they start looking into him. They wanted to see what were these other trials he'd testified in. What had he said in them? Where was he getting his PhD? You know, anything to corroborate the credentials he claimed to have. (laughs) He couldn't produce any of it. So at the second trial, they cross-examined him. They brought up the fact that he had lied multiple times. And he admitted it on the stand that he had lied. They also brought up all these things that he was wrong about. Like he'd said that there was high-velocity blood spatter on the garage door that was later proven to not even be blood. It was like some petroleum-based product that had like splattered on on the garage door. He'd also said there was evidence of a cleanup because of how the blood looked. I don't want to get all technical to it, but it turns out that the blood looked normal and he didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I feel like you know more about blood spatter than he does right now. (laughs) (laughs) But what does the state do? You know, how do they handle it? Their expert witness has just been on the stand, admitted to perjuring himself on the stand. He's the expert witness. He's just lied. What What do they do? They say, all right, yeah, the defense is correct. Rob Stites has no idea what he's doing. But a broken clock gets it right twice a day. So don't listen to him. Stop it. I'm not even kidding. That's like a quote from the Unresolved podcast. They're like, a broken clock gets it right twice a day. They said, we have three other expert witnesses. Listen to them. And I'm like, they're basing all their opinions off of what Rob Stites said. It's so the wrong clock is right twice a day. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna use that for something. I'm not sure what yet, but that's a very common me. phrase. You've never heard that? A broken no. clock gets it right twice a day. <laughs> yeah. Like doesn't matter how much you suck. You can Right. You can, you can still really be right sometimes. And- you can you can get it right. The trial lasted wow. about six weeks. The jury deliberated for four days. And returned with a guilty verdict again. For who? David. No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. And once again, they appealed. And this time they appealed on the basis that it was pure speculation that David had molested Jill. There was no evidence of any of that. It definitely should not have been allowed in a trial. David Cam spent another seven years in prison while he waited for news on his appeal. But finally, the upper courts agreed and David Cam got his third trial. Look, we have seen in case after case that getting your conviction overturned is a huge long shot. And it really takes gigantic mistakes on the prosecution's end to get a new trial. And even then, it doesn't always happen. You know, Melissa Lucio's prosecutor bribed judges and her conviction still stood. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking like, I can't believe this expert witness is literally the biggest <laughs> joke and that like doesn't matter but then i'm like no. this person's so corrupt and that doesn't matter right so, i don't know and with david cam they messed up so big that they got the conviction overturned twice the prosecution <laughs> just keeps throwing because they don't have any evidence they don't right. have any other evidence so they keep trying to slide things in to try to like prove a motive prove that david cam is this bad guy and then they keep getting the conviction overturned. <laughs> I'm sure it also didn't hurt so that wild. David is a white man, but even so, three trials is basically unheard of, you know? They ended up costing Floyd County more than $4 million, these <gasps> trials. 
and meant that county employees didn't get raises and bridges and roads were only getting repaired in emergencies. Also, that they could confirm that. (laughs) (laughs) Also, that they can get a conviction on somebody they don't have any evidence against. Yeah, like I don't get that. So now the state is gearing up for trial number three. This time they've had to cut out all of David's affairs and they've had to cut out any accusations of David molesting Jill. And since they've realized they're no longer able to just make up a motive, this time they were basically just left with the facts of the case. Oh, so it was like a five minute trial. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was probably much shorter. (laughs) This time they're basically just left with the facts of the case and their theory that he'd snuck out of the basketball game. The motive they came up with this time were life insurance policies. And I'm like, why didn't we get there from the beginning? It's always life insurance. There was somewhere between $150,000 to $200,000 in life insurance. So at least this is a motive with some legs. It's a motive with some evidence behind it. Like, sure, present this motive. You know, we've seen plenty of people kill for life insurance a lot less than $200,000. Once again, the blood spatter was a huge star of the trial. They also brought up the fact that it looked like someone had staged this crime to look like a sex crime. Kim's pants had been removed, but that had been after she'd been killed. And it looked like her body had been arranged a certain way. Her legs looked Mm -hmm. angled in a way that wasn't what you'd expect to see of a person who'd been shot and had fallen. And then the prosecution really thought that Charles Bonet's sweatshirt had been placed where it was by David. Some said that the sweatshirt was next to Brad's body. And others said that it was like tucked neatly under Brad's body or that Brad had been placed on the sweatshirt. And I could see like, if you're putting your son on the floor of the garage and you see a soft place to put him, you would probably want to put him on that as opposed to like just the garage floor, you know? Yeah. There were also several inmates that testified that David had confessed to killing his family. One was this guy, Jeremy Bullock, who was in the middle of tattooing a cross on David's arm when he told him all about how he'd used the alibi of playing basketball at church and then he'd left the games and used a thirty-eight caliber handgun to commit the murders. As for motive, Bullock testified that David told him that he and Kim had been fighting a lot and there was talk about the marriage ending. But again, you know, they they had been separated before. It wasn't like they were against a divorce, you know? Right. The defense lawyer pointed out that Bullock had said he'd seen the 48 Hours episode about the murders, so he had all the details of the crime from that 48 Hours episode, and that he'd told another inmate that he was going to, quote, get that cop. I also wanted to mention that one of the witnesses for the defense was a criminal justice professor from Texas State University. Oh my god, who is it? I may have had it. Kim Rosmo. Oh, I didn't have any women. Um, so if anyone knew her out there, Kim Rossmo, I don't know anything about her. She testified that Bonet was never investigated properly, that his claims were never independently verified. And instead of treating Bonet like a suspect, they treated him like an anomaly to their theory. And they worked instead to like explain him away so they could still get David Cam, which is weird. She said, quote, this is a direct quote. I think there were six different confessions from Mr. Bonet. I don't think Bonet ever told the truth about what happened. He's only telling the police enough to get around the last particular contradiction. She said that there was a major case of confirmation bias happening here, 
where you only look for stuff that confirms your thinking and you ignore all the stuff that doesn't, or you at least place less weight on that stuff, which like I do that all the time, all right? I'm guilty of that all the time. But, you know, I'm not I'm not responsible for people's lives here. Come on. Right. This was the first trial that Charles Bonet actually testified at. He accused David on the stand of luring him out to his house before shooting his own family and then trying to kill him to frame him for the murders. Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine? You know how we were in the mini creep talking about just having to sit there while people say whatever? Could you imagine Mm. someone looking you in the face and, like, accusing you of doing something, like, that heinous that you really didn't do? And then just having to sit there. And if you make a face muscle twitch, you could get in trouble. Like, yeah. Mm. But there was also new DNA evidence that hadn't been heard before. Oh, my goodness. Listen to this. Dr. Richard Eichelenboom. Dr. Richard Eichelenboom. Is that what you want me to listen to? <laughs> you butcher that? <laughs> no. Testified that he found touch DNA consistent with Bonet. And by consistent, I mean like it wasn't a one in a billion, but it was like a one in 10,000 that it was him. Good enough for me. Consistent with Bonet in several places on the clothing of Kim and Jill Cam. Mm. It was found on Kim's underwear the arm of her shirt where there was an abrasion that they had always thought had occurred during the struggle with her attacker, on her broken off fingernail, and on the stomach of Jill's shirt. This DNA definitely points to Bonet being the attacker of the family. But the prosecution, always on their toes, you know, they're ready for another theory of the crime. Are you ready for theory number four? I just keep leaving, just like keep changing your mind. Theory number four. (laughs) Yeah. So this time they're like, okay, he didn't do it. You know, David didn't do it, but he helped Bonet do it. They had the judge include in the jury instructions that they could find David guilty if they believed he aided and abetted Bonet during the murders. Oh. Yeah. Which is crazy. Because their only piece of evidence that David was there, according to them, is the blood spatter that Which supposedly proves that he's the he's the shooter. That blood spatter, if if you believe they're experts, that blood spatter proves he's the right. shooter. Not that he right. otherwise there's there. no evidence that he aided and abetted. And now yeah. not only that That doesn't prove that he's like in the room. No, but he was also acquitted. Shooter. So I didn't say this, but he was also charged with conspiracy in the second trial. And he was the judge threw out the charges like he was acquitted of the conspiracy charges. He was only found guilty of the murder. So Mm. he's been acquitted of conspiracy. And now they're saying you can find him guilty of murder if he conspired. I don't understand. Technically, that's double jeopardy. I would think not a lawyer. I am not a lawyer, but I would think that would be double jeopardy. Are a blood spatter expert. (laughs) Yeah, but whatever. We're playing fast and loose with the law in Indiana, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And on this podcast, always. (laughs) Uh, Disclaimer. We are not lawyers. We don't know what we're talking about. I just uh, read the articles and then I say what they said. And then I draw a lot of conclusions based on a limited amount of information. (laughs) 40% accurate. Ooh, we're getting silly. Ooh, okay. We're almost done. The jury deliberated for three days this time, and after spending 13 years in prison, David Cam was acquitted 
of all the charges on October 24th, 2013. Not guilty. Hot diggity. I didn't think that was going to happen. One juror said it was clear that they had tried to make the evidence fit their theory of the case and that it just wasn't there. Who are you? You're my peep of the week. <laughs> I haven't had Juror to, number I haven't 11. <laughs> That's my lucky number. Oh, I just made that up. <laughs> oh. well, But no, but it. I think it fit. I don't think I knew that 11 was your lucky number. Now I do. Rob Stites, who admitted to perjury in this case, was never charged with a crime, but probably because he says that the prosecutor in the case in the first trial, it was Stan Faith. There were different prosecutors. The first one was Stan Faith. And I cut this out of it, but I feel like I must tell you now that Stan Faith, he has this like right gray hair and then this amazing chin strap all the way just right under the chin, all the way ear to ear. Just right there under the chin. No facial hair. No hair on the face. It's a nice chin strap here. So Rob Stites said that Stan Faith helped him create all those false credentials. Like told him. Yes. There was also a lead detective on the case who had had doubts about Rob Stites. He'd brought it to Stan Faith's attention, but he was ignored. Here's my question. We've Mm -hmm. got enough experts places that we don't have to make them up. Like... Can't you just get an actual one instead of making fake credentials? Well, so interesting that you say that. The Unresolved Podcast, it's co-hosted by Billy Jensen, who all the murderinos out there will know who Billy Jensen is. What's a murderino? (laughs) (laughs) It was started by the My Favorite Murder Podcast. Oh. Originally, it was like fans of My Favorite Murder. So I'm in about 18 different Facebook groups that all end in, you know, like teacherinos or streamerinos for people that want to talk about Netflix or, you know, stuff like that. I'm in a few Taylor Swift ones. I'm in. (laughs) Anyways, their third season really dives into the sketchiness of expert witnesses and how terrifying it is that people can get on the stand, claim to be an expert, say whatever they want to say, even if it has no basis in fact or science. And a jury can find you guilty based on that. And the courts aren't doing anything about it. Notice the blood spatter evidence was not one of the reasons that David got a new trial ever. Like, what if the prosecution hadn't made all those egregious errors? He would still be in prison. Like other forensic sciences that have come under the microscope, so to speak. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like hair comparison analysis, bite mark analysis. Blood spatter analysis also has so many issues. The National Academy of Sciences issued a report that called for more standardization in several different forensic fields, including blood spatter, and highlighted the tendency of blood spatter analysts to overstate the reliability of their methods in the courtroom. Like they basically get up there and say, you can tell this for 100% certain because of this and this and this when it can be interpreted different ways. There is definitely a pretty vocal camp out there that still think David Cam is guilty. Kim Cam's family, you know, they very much still think that he's guilty. They said, I wonder how many murderers would walk free if they got three trials. And I do feel for them because this is another case where the victims that lost their lives, like, truly got lost because of this whole mess. Well, and just like they, the family has to keep reliving it. Yes, God, trial to trial. I saw one review of a book on this case on Amazon. I did not read the book. I couldn't find it anywhere, first of all. I would have had to pay $12 for the ebook, and I'm not doing that. (laughs) 
far cry from thinking about paying $900 for Ava Bajorks. Bajorks book. It said that this person, this reviewer, was certain that David had done it, not Bonet. And in all caps, they were like, because Bonet had no motive. And I'm like, hello, he'd been attacking women his entire life. Like, he's gone to prison for it. He steals their shoes. He attempted to sexually assault Kim. His DNA is under her fingernails. It's on her underwear. And then he shot her and the kids because they saw him. The end. There was no big conspiracy where David sneaks out of the basketball game and manages to do all of this and sneaks back. I don't know. Maybe there's information out there that I don't know. You know, I I was not there every day of the trial. And Kim Cam's family was. They were there every day of every trial. So maybe there was other evidence that I missed. I don't know. I definitely, I don't think David had anything to do with this. I think it was all Bonet. There was also several other messed up things that happened that I couldn't really fit in. Like Bonet's cousin was a cop and he took Kim Cam's phone out of evidence without signing it out and then wiped it Uh, clean of prints. And he was not punished for that. Okay. That to me is like a key piece that I could have used in the story earlier to (laughs) solidify my feelings. Really where it fit. Oh, really? The DNA on the underwear didn't do it for you? There were a lot of allegations of witness tampering with some of the expert witnesses that testified besides Stites, like trying to have a DNA analyst from the state police testify that there were vaginal secretions from Jill on the comforter in the primary bedroom so that their claims would be more, you know, have more backing that Jill had been molested, even though those tests didn't even exist. Right. Like they really were just making that up. I can't imagine. And then saying, go find that, go make the evidence up. I got to tell you, I'm getting real sick of reading about these corrupt prosecutors that are looking for a win more than they're looking for justice. Well, you're the one that's picking them. Look about how I feel. I'm going to do the Tinder swindler next, okay? (laughs) Yeah, what is that about? I keep seeing that on social media. I was going to Google it. It's about a con man who's conning a bunch of women on Tinder. Yes. That's what I'm doing next. Okay, please do, because I need to know. All right, we're doing the Tinder Swindler next, people, because I'm tired of these prosecutors. So I'm going to watch that show, (laughs) and I'm going to regurgitate it to you. (laughs) (laughs) A shout-out time. Shout-out time. Shout-out time. You get a shout-out for joining our Patreon. Everybody at the $5 level and above gets a shout-out. You got to fill out that form on the Patreon. Yeah. Don't forget. So... We don't put you on blast without your consent. So complete the form. Absolutely. We don't know who's in the witness protection program. (laughs) We don't know if your mom thinks it's on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know if you want us to just call you Captain Awesome. So whatever you want, we're here for you. All right. I want to shout myself out. Shout. I want (laughs) to thank me for all my hard work. (laughs) I want to thank me for getting up early. I want to thank me for never giving up. Oh, my God. You're done. That's it. That's going to be the only shout out this week. (laughs) Catch us next week. We just shouted out ourselves. I'm just kidding. All right. You go first. Me first. Major shouts. Mara. Grace. Man, I love the phonetic spelling. Mara. Mara. Grace. Next shout out goes to the one. The only Ed Zachary. Ed, Ed Zachary. Exactly. Number one fan. 
Uh, number one meme creator on our Facebook group. <laughs> Who finally joined the Patreon. Thanks, Ed. I finally found the photo he used for the Waffle House <laughs> montage, Taylor Swift. And <sighs> I think the people should know that photo of me screaming that like really terrible face. I was trying to place like why would there ever be a photo of me like that on the internet? And it is a screenshot of a FaceTime <laughs> when my brother FaceTimed me eating Whataburger. <laughs> and I was in Ohio. And you were so had mad. And I was like, <gasps> I was like the audacity that he would face on me. So that is that face. <laughs> Only Ed and if you don't know what we're out. talking about, join our Facebook group. There's all <laughs> the memes in there. All right, next good content. Kelsey Chilla, girl. What a she's so chill. What a good last name. Chilla. Chilla. Remember when, Kelsey remember when it was cool to be like a chillin' like a villain? All right, uh, Stacy B. Stacy B. Stacy. Talk to me, talk to me, talk to me, baby. What is, what is that? A goofy movie. Li- oh. They <laughs> see. Oh, my God. We, people have stopped the episode. They're done with us. We are off the rails. I don't know what's happening. Oh, and we haven't had a Trulies or anything tonight. No, no Trulies. I've been watering it up all night. I'm I'm down to my last gulp. Look at this. Karen Lloyd, who has a very basic name, but the phonetic is Karen Lloyd. Karen Lloyd. Lloyd. Oh, because the, the oh. Lloyd is with two L's. Oh. I didn't even get it right. Lloyd. I'm glad you're doing this next one because I couldn't figure out if it's Rihanna or Rihanna. So good luck. It's Rihanna. Are you sure? Yeah. Rihanna Clay. I hope, I hope it's not. I hope it's Rihanna. <laughs> Riri. Under my umbrella. umbrella. <laughs> clay, Clay, Clay. Oh, because her last name's Clay. Instead of, you know. Hey, hey, umbrella. hey. Clay, Clay. clay. Okay, <laughs> we are. We're done. Fired. If you have not yet heard Fired. your shout out, we have some more on the list. So it's going to be coming up in a future episode. We love all of you, though, equally. But we do love you more if you make memes, so. <laughs> love you more if you send candy in the mail oh or hand lotions or lotions in the basket <laughs> really all the snail mail has been great okay we're fired <laughs> we don't work here anymore and thank you all so much for listening we really appreciate you being here find us on social media we are on instagram at creepers pod on facebook you can send us an email uh creepers at gmail.com check out our patreon that would be amazing And make sure you subscribe to True Crime Creepers. Leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And then come back next week when I'm telling Mogab about the Tinder Swindler. Bye, peeps and creeps.